What's up, Story Geeks? Welcome to The Mandalorian Show on the Story Geeks Talk Disney+. Plus. I'm Jay Shear, author of the time travel novel Time Slingers, and with me to dig deeper into this spoiler-filled show covering episode 6 of The Mandalorian, just one Star Wars story geek who actually runs the Bounty Hunters Guild. Ashley Pauls, welcome to the show. <laughs> Hello, thanks for having me back. Of course. How cool would that be to run the Bounty Hunter Guild? I mean, that would probably, be pretty awesome. I am... probably work with a number of shady characters, though. That's the only problem. <laughs> I am not that cool, unfortunately, but I am excited <laughs> to talk about The Mandalorian. Yeah, it should be a good show. Um, I wanted to kick off the show, uh, instead of a question, just to talk a little bit about the identification of a lot of the guest stars and the people who have cameos on the show. Um so probably the most notable of those, not necessarily to Star Wars fans at all, but to the most famous person, I would argue, on the show is Bill Burr, who is, of course, a stand-up comedian. He has been in other TV shows as well. I, I think he's behind F is for Family on Netflix. Um, but are you a fan of Bill Burr? I'm actually not super familiar with his work, but I enjoyed him in this episode. Uh, I thought this was a great example of taking like famous names, but putting them in parts that fit. I didn't think it was distracting, like, oh, here's some celebrity cameos and actors in this episode. So I thought they worked it in really well. Yeah, he did pretty great, actually. Um, I was, I was, uh, he tends to be a very angry comedian. That's kind of his shtick is okay. really, really angry and um, uses a lot of profanity. So if you're, if you're a kid, maybe check with your parents first. Yeah, not for younger um, viewers <laughs> right exactly uh and so i wasn't sure how it was gonna fit um but i think it fits I, it, he fit really really well there was a couple times where you could sort of tell he was not um a tough guy just by the way just by his just purely by his movement <laughs> you yes. know I was like yeah <laughs> okay well that's fine but you know like uh he was great he, and his his very angry persona came through really well yep on the show. <laughs> he's grumpy <laughs> yeah exactly um, another one uh, was Natalie, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, Tina, Tena, Natalie Tena, who was a wildling in Game of Thrones. So she plays the Twi'lek character. Um, and you're a big Game of Thrones fan. Do you remember her character from Game of Thrones? Yes, I do. She was one of the ones that I thought, oh, she was kind of interesting. She dies too soon. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I enjoyed her performance in this. She was also in Harry Potter, I believe. So she's building up quite a cast of geek shows now, Star Wars, Game of Thrones, and Harry Potter. Um, I liked her character. I was reading an article online. Someone compared her to uh, Harley Quinn from the DC Cinematic Universe, which I thought was an interesting comparison and kind of fit. Oh, uh, yeah, that is. I, I had never seen to this point, because, I, again, I've seen Clone Wars and Rebels, but not all of them, and a lot of them I don't even remember. But um, I had not seen a Twi'lek with, like, vampire teeth and, like, that yes. whole, like, angry deal. So I was – that was interesting to me. I, I had not seen that before. Um, yeah, she's a great character. Uh, Clancy Brown. Clancy Brown's been in a billion things. Like If you go to his IMDb page, you will for sure have seen him in something. Um, for the geeks out in the world, like Starship Troopers is a, is a movie that he's in. He's in Thor Ragnarok. And his connection to Star Wars is he's actually the voice of Savage Opress or Savage. I don't know how to pronounce that name because I don't I don't know that I've seen a lot of Savage Opress, but um, which is Darth Maul's brother, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, that was a kind of a weird but interesting arc from the Clone Wars. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I haven't seen that arc. I've only seen some of the arcs. I need to go back and watch a bunch of the arcs of Clone Wars that I haven't actually seen. Yeah, there's some really good stuff in there. 
Yeah. Speaking of the Clone Wars, Matt Lanter was a guest as well. Matt, so uh, I should tell you who these people are playing. So really quick, Bill Burr played Mayfeld. Um, Natalie Tenya played, oh, what's the character name? Zian? 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 Uh, Clancy Brown played, was it Berg? The big dude. And then Matt Lanter, uh, the guy I'm just about to tell you who he is, he played the New Republic soldier, like piloting the barge this big ship that they're in the, the prison ship and that was the voice of anakin skywalker from the clone wars matt lanter was so how I, about that i am so incredibly embarrassed embarrassed that i did not recognize him at all i feel like i have to turn in my star wars geek fan card here but that's <laughs> cool that he was in there i want to go back and watch it now and pay more attention but yeah i feel super dumb i did not even register that one well i'm gonna be honest with you i saw that he was in it because he tweeted about it Okay. Then I was like, oh, well, okay, great. Who is this guy? Because he had like a ton of followers. So I'm like, I have no idea who this guy is. Go to his IMDb page. And then I saw that he was the voice of Anakin. I saw his photos, obviously, on IMDb. Then I went back and I watched the episode with my wife last night. And I'm like, dude, I would never even have recognized him anyway. So, like, you know, I only know him as Anakin Skywalker. And he doesn't. Yes. His voice in this is like, he's sort of a, um, a character with his back against the wall who's kind of uh, not tough. And so, yes. like, he does a very different persona than he does in as Anakin Skywalker in the Clone Wars, who's, I would say, very tough in the Clone yes, Wars. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, not 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 somebody you're automatically going to recognize to begin with. Uh, and then finally, my personal favorite, uh, I don't know if you want to call it a cameo or a guest appearance or whatever you want to call it, but my personal favorite was, I do not know how to pronounce this guy's last name, but Richard Iode, Richard Iode. He played Moss from the IT crowd. Yes. And if you've watched the have you watched the IT crowd? Oh Ashley? my gosh, yes. This is my favorite cameo as well because I love the IT crowd so much. And it's so good. It's so good. Yeah, he he um he was one of my favorites from the IT crowd, obviously. He's just hilarious. And if you haven't watched the IT crowd, I will say that the IT crowd maybe takes a couple seasons to like it's 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 much more British humor. Um, although I think British humor and American humor are much more synonymous now than they were like in the eighties. But if you take a couple seasons to watch it, because I think when it hits about what was it season four or five, I think there are some of the funniest episodes of television that I have ever seen in my entire life, and some of the funniest jokes. So Agreed. if you haven't seen the IT crowd, go watch it. And by the way, the reason why I started watching it was because Sandra Demas had told me she'd put it in her bio that she was a huge fan of the IT crowd. And I'm like, really? I, just, I don't know why, but I got to go watch it now. So amazing show. You should definitely see it. So that was your favorite cameo too? Yes. Yeah. I just loved him in the IT crowd and what a fun way to bring him in as a droid. I really liked that. I thought that was well done. Perfectly done. He played a per droid perfect. It was really, it's really funny because I watched the show by myself because uh, I wake up earlier than my wife does and I always try to get to the show before the spoilers hit twitter same and, uh, same <laughs> you got to do it right so uh i'm watching the show and i go oh is that um is that jermaine jermaine clement from uh from well he's been in a bunch of stuff but he was in uh moana he was the voice of the giant crab in moana but he was also um Oh, man, he's done so many things. There's a name of a show on HBO, um, Flight of the Concords, that he's known for. Oh, okay. He's really well for. And he's really funny. He's from New Zealand. Um, and he's a t he's like a Taika Waititi kind of um, friend, like that, that whole oh, crowd nice. of guys. Yeah. 
So I thought it was him. I'm like, oh, it's Jermaine Clement probably that I'm hearing this voice. And as I keep hearing it, I'm like, no, it's not Jermaine. It's somebody else. And I'm sitting there watching, watching, watching. And then I go, oh, man, that's Moss. Oh. And as soon as I knew it was Moss, it was over. And then I told my wife the same thing. I'm like, oh, you're going to love this cameo that appears. And she's listening. She's listening. She's asking me, is it is it Ricky Gervais? I'm like, no, no it's not Ricky Gervais. <laughs> and then once I told her, I'm like, that's Moss right there. And, and then she was like over the moon, too. So Anybody who hasn't seen IT Crowd, like you will love this character purely because Richard Ayode is in it. And I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right because I have no idea. But anyways, fun cameos, fun guest appearances in this episode. But let's get into the questions. Um, my first question, which is always, uh, what ridiculous thing can I <laughs> uh, put out there to, to, to create a scale around? Is on a scale of one to incoming X-Wing fighters locked in attack position... Ashley, what did you give episode six? Well, first off, I love these different ways that we rank them with the, <laughs> with the quirky uh, ranking. But I would say I would give it nine out of ten X-Wings. I really enjoyed this episode. I thought it was mm. a great cast. It was well-filmed. It was well-written. It was tightly put together. Um, no really downtime. And even though it was kind of more of an action heavy episode, I thought it did still give us some nice character moments and some revelations about who the Mandalorian is. So definitely loved it. We'll probably rank among my favorites of the show. I think. Yeah. Yeah. It, I think it, um, I give it a nine, a nine, uh, on the scale of 10 here. I told Daryl, Daryl was telling me like, Hey, you keep coming up with these crazy things. I don't know what to give them. <laughs> and I go, Just imagine that the, the, the ultimate one is 10 and then yes. you just subtract from there. Um, yeah, I told. Uh, I think that this was a nine out of ten for me, and mainly because, um, so equal with you, I am not sure it's going to be one of my favorites because I still think episode three and episode one were probably slightly better in my mind, but it's like right behind those. So, I think that um, I think that any time that the story, I'm, I feel this way with episodic television a lot. Any time that the story is not following the main plot line. I'm always left a little bit like, oh, but I want the main plot line. So give me the main plot line. And so this That's is another true. one of those like distraction episodes where it's setting up things for the future, I think. And we have a question about that, too. But it's setting things up for the future that I think will be amazing and will relate directly to the main storyline or future main storylines. But anytime it's like, well, I want to know what Werner Herzog's character is up yes. to and why they want Baby Yoda. And so... Anytime that's going to happen, I probably will have a slightly lower feeling for that particular episode, but still amazing episode. And, uh, and all the reasons you said make it amazing. More backstory, uh, fantastic action. Um, so, yeah, really, really good stuff. So, Ashley, why do you think Mando visits Ran and his crew in the first place? Because Ran says that Mando contacted him. So why? why? Why are we even showing up here at all? I think that this really speaks to just how desperate the Mandalorian is. I mean, he's basically burned all his bridges at this point. He can't go back to the Bounty Hunter Guild. He doesn't really have a lot of friends that he can rely on. He really is kind of out alone in space. People are trying to kill him. People are trying to kill um, the child. So he really has nowhere else to go. So I thought that was a nice way to show just kind of how stakes the high are 
how high the stakes are for him because Rand and Crew aren't the most savory, trustworthy characters, but it's kind of the best he's got right now. So I liked how that kind of, they keep upping the stakes and putting him in more and more challenging positions just because he's got to go somewhere. He needs money. He needs fuel. He needs his ship repaired. And when you're desperate, sometimes you have to go to people that you might not go to otherwise. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it do, it does seem like he, as he's going through these different planets, like you kind of said, like he keeps getting more and more desperate. Like this isn't a place he would normally at all ever want to go back to. Exactly. You know? Yeah. And so he ends up here just because he's really desperate. And I think, I think you're right in terms of the fact that he does need money. I think that he also needs repairs and things on his ship, although they keep using his ship. And it keeps yeah, getting it keeps getting more worse. damage. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, but I thought it, I thought it was kind of interesting because it was the first episode where I was like, oh, they didn't really give us a reason for why he's actually here. Every other episode has had, like, he he has ended up somewhere. Like, for example, he ended up on, I forget the name of the planet, but where he defended defended the, uh, the native people. Um he ended up there because he was specifically looking for a place to hide. And yes. then he ended up on Tatooine only because he couldn't make it anywhere else. And that was the first place he could go to. Um, and so this was the first time where, where they didn't really give us his motivation for going there. And we had to sort of infer it. Yes. And I think that you're true. right. I think he's basically just looking for money, looking for something to do. He, I think he's kind of lost. He doesn't, yeah. this is not an, this is not a situation wherein he has found himself before. He's never had to take care of anyone that we know of. Um, even on, even as we get into uh, some of the deeper questions here about like what happened to him beforehand, it doesn't sound like he had a lot of attachments to anybody even the people that he would have considered friends. So that's an interesting place to place uh, Mando in this whole situation. Um, so he does visit them. What are your thoughts on pairing Mando with Rand's crew? Is this a good choice? Is this a bad choice? Is it interesting? Is it not interesting? And why? I think that it is a great storytelling choice. I mean, if I was the Mandalorian myself, I would be like, pairing up with these people is a bad choice. These are bad people. I'm pretty sure they're going to stab me in the back. But in terms of storytelling, I really like this because it just shows what kind of a contrast there is between them and these people. We know he's done some stuff in the past that's not exactly on the up and up, but we get the sense that he's a better person deep down than some of these crew. Like, he's not as violent he's not necessarily like looking to betray them just to get ahead so even though he's not maybe the most upstanding person in the galaxy he's still better than these people i think a lot of fans would say in terms of um his moral character and mm. i'm also interested how much um baby yoda's involvement in his life has kind of changed that too like he's trying to protect baby yoda he's maybe not taking as many risks as he used to so i really liked the contrast just between the mandalorian and rand's crew members and maybe the mandalorian used to be more like these crew members but now he's changed so i mm. i really like that dynamic yeah yeah i think it's uh i think it was good i think the other thing that made it good i agree with everything you said plus i think the other thing that made it kind of interesting was I think that they're sort of foreshadowing the future of his crew when he's got Cara Dune and some of those other folks with oh. him. Um, and it's sort of like, okay, well, here's what he looks like in this context when no one's getting along. 
so that we can kind of see what that conflict looks like and we can kind of test his value systems against their value systems. And then we kind of know where he will stand when he's forced to be combined into some other kind of crew in the future that's actually looking out for one another. Because <laughs> this, right. this crew <laughs> does not care about each other <laughs> at all. Yeah. Uh, it's a giant disaster in that regard. So, yeah. So, yeah, that's uh, it was fun. It was fun to see him interacting with more people trying to form a team. Uh, and like we just talked about, pretty miserable <laughs> team formation experience. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I felt like this episode had some of the best CG we've seen yet. Um, it really hit me when he was docking and undocking at Rand's, um, for lack of a better word, like floating fortress city thing. Um, I actually don't know the formal name of that. It looks like one of the floating Bespin things. And I don't yeah, know what those are called. Um, you don't have any idea what they're called, do you? I don't, unfortunately. Yeah, I don't either. Uh, if they even have a name. I'm sure they do. Someone out there is listening going like, oh, it's this. And I, Definitely. Okay. Like, Wikipedia, it's on there, I bet. Yeah, exactly. Go look it up. Go look it up. Um, so I thought that CG was amazing. And the practical effects are still uh, really, really good. So where do you think the show is hitting its stride and where do you think the show is still finding itself in regards to production design, acting choices, storyline, etc.? Yeah, um, I really liked the look of this episode. I think in terms of like cinematography and special effects, this might be the best episode we've seen. It kind of reminded me of Game of Thrones in a way, not in a literal sense, but when you're watching Game of Thrones, you're like, wow, this feels like film quality on a TV screen. And I thought they did a really great job with the ships and some of the interesting filming choices that they made in terms of setting some of it like a, a little bit like a horror movie, which I believe we're going to dive into more later. And I really like that. I love the aesthetic, the aesthetic, um, how they're still kind of going for a Western space, really leaning into that. I love that. The one thing that I would want to tweak, and it's something that you alluded to earlier, is that sometimes I feel like they get distracted a little bit from like the main drive of the show, like kind of what is the big thing that this show is moving towards? Like why are these imperial ex-imperials or the client, whatever, why do they want baby Yoda? What is baby Yoda going to play in a, in terms of his role in all of this? And then where are we going to end up at the end of the season? So that would be the one thing that I would maybe wish they would do a little bit more on is kind of remind us again of like what the show is moving towards. What's the big issue at the heart of all this? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I agree with you um, on all those points. Like, like the, uh, the production design, when you're looking inside the New Republic ship and uh, you're looking at all the different screens and things like that, it's amazing because it looks just like Rogue One or A New Hope or like that whole, like you said, aesthetic vibe that they're trying to convey there. Um, and one of the things that Rogue One did with that vibe is it kind of modernized the what you would have looked at before and said like, well, that looks like you just did it in the seventies. No, no longer yeah. <laughs> looks like it's in the seventies. Like it looks like it's been modernized, but it still is reflective of what they were trying to do when they did it in the seventies, you know? Um, and I thought that that, that, that whole aspect of it looks really, really, really amazing. The sets that they're building. I know some of the times they're, they're, they're filming on a, basically with a giant screen behind them, but then other times they're building sets. And this, this episode to me, felt like they were mostly using a set because they had all those hallways 
And I have a feeling that like it's actually just one or two hallways <laughs> that they but, just film from different <laughs> exactly. angles. Exactly. Yeah, but I I mean the production design again was fantastic in all of those areas, and then we even got to see some practical effects, some with a little bit of CGI. It looked like to me in terms of the prisoners popping up when they pop up through the 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 doors. Um, so I think that the show is really hitting its stride there. Um, I I mentioned you and I both have now. Uh, belabored or uh, I shouldn't say belabored kind of um, been bummed out for lack of a better word about the the distraction of some of the episodes from what the main plot line is supposed to do and one of the things I've had to tell myself as I've watched this show is I used to be uh, a really really big fan of the rifleman have you ever heard of the rifleman yes I have yeah it's a super old school show it used to be black and white when it first came out um in fact i don't know if it was ever in color now that i think about it but as a little kid we had we didn't have cable and so one of the local uh access television stations would run rifleman um reruns and i would watch them all and i because i thought it was amazing um it was <laughs> the guy was a cowboy and we just go around like solving problems in different cities and that is sort of a trope of like old school western tv shows is that you kind of would go to the next town and solve the next town's problem. And I think when I talk about the show hitting its stride, I really do feel like the show is intending to do what it's doing, which is to say he's going to show up and solve a problem at a different place every single time. And they're they're fully living into that Western TV show sort of trope. Um, if you like that, you'll like it. If you don't like it, you won't like it. I like shows that or basically extended movies. So you mentioned Game of Thrones earlier. We talked about um, Natalie as a part of, of Game of Thrones. Like, that's basically, it's not episodic at all. It's it's a full serialized story that is always on point with developing the characters in one direction toward its finale, right? Um, which is uncommon in TV because in TV, you, it's uh, it's harder to do. You have to keep... Uh, advancing the story in ways that are not ridiculous, which is why a lot of people either do or don't like soap operas because soap operas keep trying to present you with new storylines that you're like, well, this would never happen. This is so <laughs> ridiculous. Um, but if you don't care and you're just looking to be entertained, it's fine. So I think that uh, it's a so The Mandalorian is setting up a serialized story that is very episodic in terms of its execution, much like they would have done with a Western TV show in the past. And so I'm just having to tell myself, oh, it's cool. This is just the kind of show we're getting. And then that way I don't get too disappointed because I am a much bigger fan of shows like Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad where the whole story is a story and it is contained um as opposed to i'll give you a good example of what it's opposed to uh something like x files or mm. fringe those shows have like a through line like obviously there's a through line going through multiple seasons of like something they're trying to figure out but you show up to the show on a weekly basis and they're going to present you with a different problem that needs to be solved and will be solved and contained in that one episode and then you're going to move on to the next one and i think that uh mandalorian's sort of somewhere in the middle um so I like it, but sometimes it can be distracting to get away from the main conflict for sure. Um, and like I said, the CG I think is really hitting its stride, and it wouldn't surprise me if they've if they've still been working on the CG this whole time, so that oh, it'll get yeah. better and better. Because you know that's what happens in Marvel movies. Like 
Marvel will um, Marvel will release trailers just like we saw with Sonic the Hedgehog, where they release a trailer and people go like, "Ah, Sonic doesn't look that good," and it's like, "It's fine, we're still working on him." Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, so this is kind of what we could be seeing here too: is that they have more time to work on the later shows, and therefore they don't have to release something that's not up to par, so to speak. Of course, par is relative because it keeps changing, and it's all amazing to begin with. So <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so. Here's my question for you. There's this little exchange, Ashley, where Zian, I think is her name. Is it Zian? Zian, Zian, which was one of the two. Close I don't enough. remember the pronunciation, yeah. But there, it's implied that she may or may not have seen Mando without his helmet. So do you think that she actually saw him with his helmet off? Yes or no, and why? I do not. I... I think that she wanted to imply that she had just because that's kind of the character she is. She wants to tease and kind of like put people on edge and, you know, kind of making people uncomfortable so she can kind of get the upper hand in the situation. Mm. But I just feel like um, that helmet and the Mandalorian way just is so important to him. So if she knew him when he was a Mandalorian, I don't think she's seen him with his helmet off. Um, a thought I just had is that if she happened to know him back before the days when he was a Mandalorian, that could be possible. But um, I'm trying to remember exactly what happened in the episode. But I think she has just known him since he's been following the Mandalorian way. And if that's the case, I don't think that really anybody has seen him without his helmet. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm, I actually am 100% on the same page because the one thing I thought of too was, well, maybe he hadn't actually started to be follow the Mandalorian code, except that we also know that Rand says it was crazy to have a Mandalorian with me. Yeah. And it, made, it made our jobs like a whole lot more interesting to have a Mandalorian. And then that makes me think that like he must have been armored out because otherwise like no one would know he was Mandalorian. Like that would not be a thing. We also know that he didn't doesn't seem like he's had a full set of armor before. So it seemed to me like he probably has had a partial set of armor for a really long period of time. And though he may not have been following the Mandalorian code to a T, I would highly doubt that she has seen him without the helmet on. Or that Rand has or that any of that crew has. It just doesn't really make sense to me. So, yeah, we're on the same page. Um but who knows? I mean, they it clearly she's definitely one of those characters who like I think Harley Quinn is a pretty good example, like you said, just in terms of like she's sort of trying to be flirty with every other character. And then and I'm not saying that she that Zion or Zian was flirty with every other character, but she's definitely trying to be that with the Mandalorian in a way that is almost more trying to make him uncomfortable than it is trying to suggest that they had some sort of romantic relationship in any way, shape or form. Exactly. So, um, and apparently the Mandalorian was a pretty bad dude back in the day. So in what ways, in what ways has the Mandalorian either changed or was missing? His actions were misinterpreted when he was younger in a way that once uh, makes us want to root for him in this show, because Obviously, like, you know, we do root for villains on occasion, especially if there's worse villains around. But we tend to like to root for anti-heroes or heroes way more so than we like to root for villains. So what about the Mandalorian in his current iteration makes us want to root for him where we may not have wanted to root for him back when he was hanging out with Ran and Zyan and the whole crew? 
Yeah, I really like that they're leaning into the whole Clint Eastwood kind of man with no name feel. You don't know exactly what's in his past, but you know there's some bad stuff. And I like that they they don't necessarily explain everything. They kind of let you fill in some of the gaps. And you have to wonder, well, is some of this just stories, just legend? Was he really that bad? Is he worse than even people have been saying? So we're kind of left to guess that but I think we really do get the sense that he's probably done some things that are not so great in his past but he does have a moral code I mean um, he was almost willing to leave baby Yoda behind but something stopped him like he went back at great risk to himself to and basically destroyed his career to save the child so I think this gives us the idea that he's always had a conscience maybe he's been ignoring it for a while or not necessarily paying attention to that but he does have this um this inner like compassion this better sense that even if he's tried to bury it it's still there and I think once we see that come out that really makes us root for him like all these risks he's taken to uh save baby Yoda and I mean I was on board as soon as he went back to save the child I was like I'm in like that was great. So I, I like that they're kind of showing us more of his humanity behind the mask. And I think we're just going to keep seeing more of that as we go forward. Mm, yeah, absolutely. You know, before I answer this question, just really quick, you made me think of something in regards to the show hitting its stride. Uh, I just talked about how amazing the CG was. I will say um, one thing, and this is a really, really uh minor complaint and i don't want to i don't want to make it sound like i'm i'm really upset about it or anything like that but i will say that the baby yoda sometimes it looks like there's cg that's augmenting the puppet sometimes it looks like it's all cg sometimes it looks like it's just a puppet when human beings interact with the puppet on occasion it unfortunately looks like a really really fake uh figurine and, and so when there was a moment when Bill Burr's character Mayfeld picks up baby Yoda and the ears don't move it's, and he's kind of like making fun of it and the whole, they, they, they kind of stay on one shot that whole time of, of yeah. like uh, maybe five or 10 feet away from him holding baby Yoda. And I'm like, that looks really, really fake. But that's me complaining about one specific shot in the midst of a, a bunch of amazing baby Yoda footage. I mean, my wife will literally squee every time he comes on the screen and looks super cute. So like, <laughs> which is all the time. <laughs> yeah. Which is all the time. It's like every time he turns around, my wife's just going like, Oh my gosh. Um, which is, which is really funny. But, um, but yeah, so the, there are some things where I think the show still is probably working on how it will do that thing. And honestly, if they never, if they never solve that, I don't care. Um, and now in regards to this, in regards to like rooting for anti-heroes and rooting for villains, um, it's interesting because I had a, I took a lot of writing courses as a writer. I took a lot of writing courses in college, even though I didn't major in writing because I didn't think I'd ever make any money at it or I, sorry, I didn't think I could make money at it out of college. Um, and, uh, so as I was, as I was learning, one of the things that my professor told me, especially when it comes to screenwriting is that you can't have the character on screen doing bad things in the beginning of your film or of your TV show or whatever, um, because no one will want to root for that character. And that was in, you know, the early two thousands. Now I think we're seeing a couple things. One, we are seeing that cinema and I use cinema as a broader term, meaning even cinematic things that are on TV now, because things like you said are movie quality. Now when you're watching TV, 
we've we've gotten so sophisticated with our storytelling that we uh like like have an entire show called breaking bad about a character just getting worse and it's super compelling television so one i think like societal pressures on what a good story is have slightly changed um but two i also think that in the western genre like you've pointed out this has been something that's been accepted where in other genres it probably would not be accepted and it's been accepted for a really long period of time. And I think the reason why we root for Western characters is because in the old West, we assume that there it is lawless, that there is no law. It, it, and, and honestly, I think if you study history, there wasn't a lot of law. It was just a lot of people moving West from the United, from the Eastern United States, trying to figure it out. And as that occurred, there were not, um, you know, as we think of today, we have really complex systems of government, complex systems of uh, of uh, policing and things like that. But back in the day, they did not have that at all. And so the idea of what good or bad was is much more inherent in that type of show because there is no law telling you you must do this. And so then you get you get individuals and cities developing their own creeds or their own credos. And then you, you see those things butting up against one another. So um, I think this is a show where the reason why we like the Mandalorian is because we know that he does, this is my basic, um, the basic rule of, uh, of characters is if characters do selfless things, you probably will like them. If they do selfish things, then you probably will dislike them. And th there's obviously a lot of gray in between there. Like if, if a character does selfish things because there are more selfish people around them and they need to defeat those people to get away, then you'd still probably root for that character. But in general, like overarchingly, we tend to root for the people who are doing selfless things. And I think whereas the Mandalorian even makes an excuse for himself and says like, I did what I had to do. Um, I think some of him probably regrets that, which is why he reacts so defensively. And now we see a character who's doing a lot of selfless things. The whole entire point of him taking baby Yoda around is entirely selfless because he could have just got his payday and left. But he says, no, I actually believe that we should not do whatever those guys were going to do to baby Yoda. We should not do that. And we'll just take him. I'll take him and protect him. So I think that's essentially one of the reasons why why we root for this guy. But I love um, what you're talking about with in terms of following the the old school Western format here because I think it's I, for me personally it's much more compelling than let's like say following Superman who's just like super good and is always good. And it's just, you know, there's nothing else to it. So, um, where do you think? Transitioning from that question, where do you think Zero ranks in the history of Star Wars droids? Well, I feel like I'm a little bit biased in terms of this one because I just love the actor from the IT crowd, so that makes it even <laughs> better to me. I really love how they've expanded the types of droids we've seen in the Star Wars universe. Like you have Zero here, and then you have uh, K2SO from uh, Rogue One, who's really snarky, mm. and like Chopper from Rebels, who if he could talk would probably say horrible things that none of us would ever want to hear. <laughs> and then you have the cute little ones like BB-8 that seem a little more friendly. So I really like that they're just diversifying like we spent so many years with c-3po and r2 who are great but there's a lot more droids out there so anytime we have a fun unique new droid i'm on board i'm on board for that yeah 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 definitely i i have to rank him up near the top and it's purely because of what we talked about in regards to liking the it crowd 
um, and the actor that's playing <laughs> the role. Because, I mean, I think Star Wars, like you're saying, is giving us a different style of droid. They gave us two two droids predominantly to follow in the original trilogy. Uh, obviously, R2-D2 and C-3PO. And C-3PO was sort of like the uh, neurotic, very anxious, worried droid. And R2-D2 was sort of like the kind of street smart but funny uh, sidekick and they kind of made the odd couple and it was interesting um, and then they've just basically taken those two personas and like amplified them <laughs> so you get uh, and, and done some other things too I think BB-8's pretty unique like you talked about them taking us and giving us new styles of droids to kind of interact with um, I think BB-8's a very clear example of that and then we have these um, bad attitude droids and we had L337 is a bad attitude droid uh, K2SO is a bad attitude droid. Uh, IG11, which we saw earlier in this series, it was a totally bad attitude droid, and now and now we have Zero. Um, and it's pretty funny to me that his name is. I don't think we've ever seen a droid with just one letter or number, and he's just Zero. <laughs> like he's yeah. like, there's nothing else. It's just yep. Zero, <laughs> which is kind of awesome. Um, so he's gonna rank near the top of mine because not only is the voice actor amazing. But he sort of has, if you took K2SO and mixed him with C3PO, you sort of get zero. Like he, like when he's oh, docking yeah. the, uh, I didn't think of that until just a second. It's not even in my notes. But when he's docking the ship, he's like, docking ship now. You know, he's like, and it's like, he's very just giving you the facts, but he's so sarcastic and annoying as he's giving you the facts that he's more like C3PO than he is maybe like K2SO who seems to have his own processing of, of emotions and events to where he can say like, I really don't like this person um, where you would never think you'd hear that from C3PO or um, zero. So I don't know. I thought, I thought zero was, was great. And I hope we see more of zero. Me future. too. <laughs> um, I'm not sure we will based on how that episode ends, but who knows? Um, okay. So I have a lot of questions this week, by the way. <laughs> so maybe just some good things, just the two of us. But um, this is our first experience with the New Republic. What do you think of what we saw of the New Republic? Which is not a lot, but what did you think? I enjoyed that they brought the New Republic in. I mean, anytime you can kind of tie into the larger Star Wars universe and provide some context about what the galaxy is like at this point, I think is good. Um, I'm not positive about this, but were all the uh, New Republic X-Wing pilots, were those cameos? I thought I saw Dave Filoni, but that yeah, just I think I've heard view. other people say that it was Dave Filoni in the in the X Wing too. And then I I felt like the um, I apologize for not knowing her name, but the female pilot, um, I feel like I've seen her in another yeah. Star Wars thing. Um, like, but I don't know. Everybody looked familiar, but I enjoyed just that little bit to provide some kind of some more context for what's going on. And I'm curious if that is maybe foreshadowing the Mandalorian getting more involved with the New Republic because he really doesn't have any place else to go right now. So that might be somewhere he would go to take refuge. Like, obviously, the New Republic will is going to treat Baby Yoda better than the First Order. So mm. I'm glad that they're starting to kind of weave some of these threads in. I definitely don't think this is the last we're going to see of the New Republic, and he's going to have bigger encounters um, yet to come in this season. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I agree. I, I love the uh, aesthetic of the 
republic rebellion new republic i love that particular aesthetic because obviously that's not what we see it's not the same aesthetic that we see from the empire or the first order it's um just a slightly different they, they build their ships differently the hallways look different um, everything tends to be lighter whereas with the empire everything seems, tends to be darker um, if you would have seen their prison ship, you wouldn't have had white doors and white walls. You probably would have had really dark gray or black, you know, um, which is just part of the aesthetic of Star Wars of saying these are bad guys and these yeah. are good guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was really fun to see even uh, in fact, I didn't even pick up on it the first time I watched the episode. But as I watched with my wife, she's like, oh, they have the they have the rebellion symbol all over the droids. I'm like, oh, yeah, I didn't even notice that the first time I watched I knew it was a New Republic ship, but this just didn't occur to me that that to look for logos. Um, it was interesting that there were so many droids that the New Republic was using. Um, that was kind of interesting as guards. Uh, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed seeing the New Republic. I thought it was it was pretty cool that Matt Lanter, being the voice of Anakin Skywalker, is the first actual New Republic soldier that we see um the human human new republic soldier because it's there's so many tie-ins to all of the obviously his voice doing anakin and that being and anakin being a really big um deal and bringing down the republic actually uh or the galactic republic at that point in time so yeah it's just uh it was cool it was was fun to see and as you know traditional star wars setting up more traditional star wars and that's that's always cool too so i agree um Okay, so you mentioned this earlier. Uh, Ray DeLeon, a Story Geeks Club member, uh, had reached out to me separately and said, how cool is it that we had the first horror episode of, uh, of Star Wars? Uh, although you could probably argue that uh, the Darth Vader scene in Rogue One is sort of a horror, a horror shot, too. Um, but we had, like, full-on horror movie trope stuff um in this show specifically the one i wanted to call out and you can call out others if you can think of them is the the mando appearing and disappearing in the blinking lights and the flashing lights of the alarm behind mayfeld what do you think of this aesthetic that they added to this particular episode oh i thought that was great um horror is not necessarily my personal favorite genre all the time but um i've found myself starting to be a little more open-minded towards it especially since i think get out was a turning point for me personally in a quiet place and like the slasher movies i'm not so much into but some of the other elements of like building suspense and kind of the slow creeping dread i think can offer some really powerful storytelling possibilities i love that the mandalorian switched to lights to red you have these heavy red lights that kind of give the whole set an eerie quality and kind of dials up the tension and how he's picking off um, these other mercenaries one by one. It kind of reminded me a little bit of Alien where everyone's trapped on this ship. The alien's going around picking off people one by one and you never know who's going to be next. I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought it was exciting and really interesting to see and you could feel the tension. I was really engrossed in the episode during this part. Yeah, I, I there is something I'm not a horror fan either. Um, well, no, let me let me restate this. I do not like traditional uh, horror storylines. I am uh, they freak me out. <laughs> I will have nightmares oh, same, for days uh, if I watch the show. Um, however, when horror techniques have been utilized in geek properties. 
I have always really loved it. So the other scene that I'll point out, not from The Mandalorian, is from uh, Batman v Superman. And I know a lot of people do not like BVS and have a lot of issues with it. But my favorite Batman scene in the history of Batman scenes is when the the beginning of the film, first time we ever see Batman, they are coming down into the cellar where there's a group of girls being trafficked and the two cops notice Batman and they look up and he's in the corner. Um, and it's a full horror movie scene. The cops have all this impending dread when they we they're hiding Batman from us. When they finally when we finally see Batman, he's in the corner. He looks like he's almost like uh, what you would have said like with a demon possessed person hanging onto the walls, you know, like yeah. climbing the walls. Um, and he scrambles across and they're like trying to shoot him and stuff. Uh, because I think that um, what horror movie does really well, horror movies do really well, technique wise is what you just said. They they give us this sense of suspense, this incoming dread. Um, I just don't want that dread to be related to uh, particular things that are going to freak me out. But in this case, uh, this is uh, using a horror technique in a way that we are engrossed in this character and want him to win at this point in time. And so the fact that he's sneaking up is really awesome as opposed to really scary. I mean, it's, yeah, sure. It's kind of scary. And we can see that Mayfeld is scared. Um, but, uh, it's a really, really fun trick to use. Um, and of course, if you have a Deveronian in your, in your show, it's going to automatically seem like a little bit more of a horror show. Cause they look like Satan. Yeah, so <laughs> you know? <a> little scary. <laughs> yeah. 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 Red skin, big horns. Yeah. It gets kind of crazy. Um, so yeah, so that was, that was awesome. And uh shout out to Ray DeLeon on that for, for, for picking up on that as well. Um, so there is a moment in this episode where baby Yoda goes to use the force because zero is standing over him and about to, uh, shoot him basically potentially. Um, and it looks like baby Yoda is going to use the force. And of course, Mando kills zero before baby Yoda can use the force. So here's my question, because it's actually a really great scene. Uh, I've seen it three times now because my wife and I watched it twice. He literally goes to use the force. And then when Zero dies, he looks at his own hand like, did I just do that? And then, of course, he didn't do that because the Mando is standing behind uh, Zero. But um, my question for you, actually is how strong in the force do you think Baby Yoda is? And how much can he use the Force? We've had a lot of controversy recently about characters being able to use too much of the Force too fast or being trained in ways that uh, – or not being trained in ways that, that not knowing how to use the Force. So what do you think about Baby Yoda specifically? Yeah, I like that they've kind of kept a sense of mystery surrounding what Baby Yoda can and can't do. We don't really know anything about the child's background. Like, was the first time he used the Force when he stopped that creature from ramming into the Mandalorian? I think that was in like back in the second episode. Mm. Has he used it before? But if I had to take a guess, I would say he's kind of like figuring it out. Like, these Force powers are blossoming. He's kind of figuring out what he can do. What his limits are, we saw that when he did use the force to lift that creature, it exhausts him and he slept for a long time afterwards, whereas you would think some like a more powerful Jedi like Anakin or Obi-Wan could do that and they don't like pass out afterwards. So mm. I would say that he's just kind of developing his force powers. But in terms of characters getting force powers, I think it's all kind of up to the force itself. Like, um, in the sequel trilogy when it was time for Rey to use the force like she just gained those powers I think the force can kind of do what it wants when it wants it's an independent mm. entity or at least 
I believe that's how the uh, cinematic universe here has presented it. And um, it's it has chosen Baby Yoda, and we don't necessarily know why, but I'm thinking we, we're going to find out, or at least we, I hope we do, because I have a lot of questions about Baby Yoda and how... That it has developed the force powers and why it's been kidnapped. So yeah. hopefully some of those questions will be answered. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, and I would say, based on what we've seen, it seems like Baby Yoda would be extremely powerful in the force. Obviously, we have a history of force users of his species, whatever that species is, have been really powerful force users. Um, but it does seem like he, like for example, when he lifts the, um, I don't remember the name of the one horned character, but um the when he lifts that that giant beast that uh that mandalorian the mandalorian is trying to kill or at least distract and 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 get the egg from um it does seem like he's doing it sort of we've seen this this is very common with x the x-men where their powers don't manifest until they're emotion very 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 emotionally disturbed and like they need to do something and they don't know exactly how they're controlling it they just do it um, and then they they need to be able to figure out how to control that. That seems to be sort of the way that Force characters use the Force as well. Although that mythology has not been explored nearly as much as the X-Men mythology has been spelled out, which is why I think there's so much controversy over when characters use the Force and how they're able to. Um, because we just don't know actually how it works. And like you just said you know the jedi are trying to let the force flow through them to do what the force wills whereas the sith are trying to use the force in their own in whatever way they want to but we've seen a bunch of jedi manipulate the force as well so then it's like this confusing thing of like well what is supposed to happen here um and so i think based on what we saw with the one horn i would say that baby yoda is probably super powered in the force but just has no idea how to use it or has not been trained much in how to use it. And therefore when zero is standing in front of him, if it were, if it, if we had given it two, three more seconds, maybe baby Yoda would have just like completely obliterated zero or, or force lightning him or something like that, because he would have, his emotions would have kept getting crazier and crazier. And then they would have come out that way perhaps. But like you said, we don't know. And it's part of this show is figuring out what exactly is going on with baby Yoda. So we're going to kind of have to <laughs> wait and see, I guess. Um, how did you like the inclusion of the gunship? The gunship to me seemed like a droid era gunship. I don't think that that was a manned, so to speak, manned quotation marks gunship. It looked like like a, what we would have seen from the droid army, um, back in the prequels. And then of course too, like we see the X-Wings show up. So what did you think of these, these, uh, spacecrafts showing up here? Yeah, I think it goes just um, back to kind of what we were talking about with the New Republic. Um, anytime you can add little hints of Star Wars that we know or recognize, I think is great. And it reminds us when we get to see the ships, it's like, oh, this is a sci-fi story set in space. This is Star Wars. So if we saw it all the time, it might get to be a little bit too much. It's like, yeah, we do know we're watching a Star Wars show. But I like little elements of this that kind of help ground us and remind us what universe this is set in. Yeah, and I love the setup for that scene too. The fact that the Mandalorian took the beacon with him and then and basically gave it to Quinn. Oh, that was and so good. It was so <laughs> it's good. Like, oh, so clever. Yeah, and and, and and you know we talked about like why we're rooting for the Mandalorian earlier. Well, I can tell you exactly why we're rooting against Quinn. I mean, 
that dude has no loyalties whatsoever and won't even try to save his own sister. Right. Just literally doesn't even care about her. Um, in fact, Bill Burr's line is so funny because he's like, nice family. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that, that whole that whole setup for that scene is brilliant. And so then when the X-Wings show up, um, so first of all, what I thought was cool is I thought, okay, cool. We're going to see uh, the Razor Crest fight against the – um, the gunship, and I and I felt I felt kind of like okay, well that's kind of an interest. I guess it's an interesting way to end the show, but then when they hit us with the twist that the actual beacon was with Quinn and that the X wings just jumped into the system, or at least into that area of the system, that was like oh yeah, this is epic. And then they uh, they go through the whole thing of like you know locking the the S foils in attack position, and that's like you know quintessential old school original trilogy star wars and the fact that you know I, I didn't fact check it to see if that was dave filoni i know a lot of people have said it was um the fact that he would appear in there is amazing too it's like an awesome homage to him so you know now dave filoni and john favreau have both appeared in this series yeah. that they're executive producing which is really cool um but yeah, I, I loved it. I, I I was so stoked to see the X-Wings. And I didn't expect that. But when they came on screen, I was just uh, really geeking out about the fact that they were included here. So that was really fun. Um, two more two more questions here before we close it out. And we've almost gone the full hour with just the two of us. So good job, Ashley. We've got a whole, yeah, the, the power of a whole show behind us here. Um, by the way, for those, uh, I told Ashley beforehand, uh, but for those listening, wondering like where everybody else is. Uh, so our frequent guest, um, Tori, is actually right down the street from me, actually, at Disneyland. She She's um, having a fun time with her family over there. Um, and then Daryl, who was supposed to be on this morning show, uh, unfortunately, his wife broke her toe last night and uh is having a hard time getting around so he is he's managing the kids over at the smith household so um just fyi uh we it was just left to ashley and i so um we're just bringing you the content we want to bring you um how do you think ashley for this for this episode which we both agree is like a nine out of ten really cool really great episode but how will this episode impact the rest of this series as we talk about like there being this episodic type of format versus this series type of format. And this is somewhere in between. How will this episode impact the larger series overall? If I had to take a guess, I'm thinking this will be the last kind of, of the side quests of the season. Cause I believe we have just two more episodes. So mm. if I had to bet, I think those are both going to get back to the heart of you know, what this show is about. Like, what does the client want with Baby Yoda? What is he ultimately going to do with Baby Yoda? I think this episode proves that, you know, going off on these little one-off missions is risky because you have um, Zero almost killing the child. And so he can't necessarily just keep doing this and running forever. So I think this episode was kind of a fun little distraction in some ways, but I think it really just drives home the point that he's going to have to start making some plans for the future. He's going to need some allies that he can actually count on instead of this crew. And what is he going to do with the rest of, the, of his life? I don't know that he's willing to just keep running with baby Yoda forever. So I think we're going to see things get pretty desperate in the next two episodes mm. and things will really come, come together. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I think, uh, I think it almost has to be that way. Now, I will say, I will tell you this. Like you said, there's only two episodes left. 
um, which I actually kind of was was a little bit surprised about. Um, it just hit me, you know, we there was so much in anticipation for this show, and the fact that it's almost over for this season is like mind blowing to me. I know <laughs> it's such a bummer. I want more, um, but I think that. Now, did you watch the TV show The Boys on Amazon Prime? I have not yet. I've been hearing lots of interesting stuff about it, though. I, I really loved it. It is for sure not for kids. Um, it is one of the more adult geek shows out there. It's Game of Thrones level, I would I would say, in terms of its adult content. Um, and maybe not quite Game of Thrones, but close. Um, and it had an eight episode television series as well and it's episode eight ended in such a way that i was like oh this isn't a season this is just like half a season and you just did it to say to see if people would like it and tried to get the content out there as fast as possible i don't hate on that that's not a big problem for me but i will tell you that it's a total bummer as a fan not to have any sort of conclusion to anything now granted they would argue that they did they did reveal one thing which then you would say, okay, fine, that's the conclusion of the season. But I will tell you that it is way more cliffhanger than it is like resolution. Um, and I and I have a distinct feeling we are going to get the same thing here with the Mandalorian. Oh, you could be um, right. Yeah, because I, I mean, think about it this way: somehow, all of those other characters are going to be back in this show somehow, some way, some form of them is going to appear again. I don't. There's no way we've seen the last of Cara Dune. Whether or not we've seen the last of Fennec Shand could be argued. We argued that last week on last week's episode. But Grief Karga is still around. I mean, all of these people on the poster are still around. It would be shocking to me if they don't have re-recurring guest appearances in future seasons. Will they have any more appearances in the next two episodes? Uh, maybe, but they're not gearing up for that in any way, shape, or form, which then leads me to believe that we're getting basically like a – the eight episodes we're getting now are basically mid-season – a mid-season stop, and season two is going to be more like the finish of season one than it is going to be like the an actual season two. And that's very much like what a lot of the streaming services are doing because they are so desperate for content that they're just trying to do as much as they can and then release it as fast as they can. Um, and of course, Disney Plus, they they needed this series um, here for launch. So my guess is that we won't see any of these characters again the rest of this season, but that the show is setting up these characters as the sort of um, uh, antithesis of what Mando will develop with his team in the future. And so then you've got a mercenary team, you've got uh, the New Republic, you've got the the uh, Werner Herzog and his Imperials, and then you've got the Mando and his sort of, for lack of a better word, good mercenaries, um, his team. I think they'll develop over time, uh, kind of like we talked about last week. And then those will be the factions that will be set up against one another is kind of my guess. But who knows? <laughs> we'll, we'll see where this goes. I don't think we've seen the last of... I mean, I don't think they would have put him in a cage in the prison cell. If Why why do we put him in the prison cell instead of killing him? Well, one, we have to show that Mando is not a bad guy. Two, we have to... I think they need to sit in steam on the fact that Mando left them like that and become angrier and angrier at him. If they were dead, they would not pose a threat to him in the future. Now, they pose an increasing threat to him as the angrier they get that they were put in that position. 
So I'm guessing that they just like just like Batman's enemies in Arkham Asylum. These are the enemies that are going to show up again in future seasons, so to speak. So we'll see. Um, last question. What did you think about Mando not killing the other mercs at the end of the episode? I kind of just shared with you kind of why I thought they did that. But what did you think, Ashley? What do you think about him not killing them? Yeah, I agree with pretty much everything you're saying. I think that as an audience, people would have not necessarily been bothered like if he'd gotten rid of them off screen because they did try to kill him and you know that they probably hurt baby Yoda. Mm. So I don't think the audience would have necessarily been bothered by it, but I think it is important to show that he does draw a line. Like he's not going to save him because they betrayed him, but he is not going to go the extra step and kill them. So I think it again is an important way to show that he's a little bit apart. He's not as bad as some of the other people. And like you said too, he's going to let him sit in there and stew for a little bit about how they chose to betray him. So look, now it's come back on them. And if maybe if they hadn't betrayed him, they'd all be getting out right now. So Mm. I think it's a good, good character moment for him to kind of set up that contrast. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting to me to see like societies and how societies are built and how societies respond to certain types of heroes and U.S. society. I mean, we've talked a lot about Westerns, right? And I think that there's something to I've wondered about this in other contexts. Um, There is something called the Gallup Strengths Finder. Have you ever have you ever heard of the Gallup Strengths Finder? Yes, I have. Have you done it? I, th- I think so. Okay. So it's basically what it does is it tells you um, based on a set of questions that you fill out yourself. Um, and so basically it relies on your self-awareness too. Um, what, what your strengths are. Um, and each person has a unique set of strengths and the unique set of the way in which they utilize their strengths. And this is a Gallup organization developed this over time. It's sort of similar to a Myers-Briggs or a, I know the Enneagram is really popular right now too. Like, so it's sort of similar to those personality tests to tell you like what you're good at and how you can excel as a human being. Um, I've always wondered if that is, uh, if you could take a country and have the average profiles in specific countries be different based on the country's strengths and weaknesses. Because because like we, we see in, in, in reality, we see different countries have different strengths and weaknesses. The, um, the Japanese culture is incredibly precise. And we actually look to the Japanese culture to dictate forms of management in which precision and efficiency are uh, much needed things. Um, we tend to look at the U.S. as highly entrepreneurial and um, highly capitalistic. And how would we make money or how do we start new businesses? How do we innovate in the world? We look at the German culture as uh, very uh, forward focused in innovation relative to mechanical things. And German engineering is type of a thing like rocketry and and car, you know, cars and things like that. You might look at other cultures and see deep-seated um, uh, cultural community-oriented, um, uh, like in the U.S., I'm trying to draw a uh, conclusion here to saying the U.S. is super individualistic, whereas other cultures um, are much more community-oriented. Um, so what does this have to do with the Mandalorian? Well, <laughs> I think that the Western genre and what we see in the Mandalorian is a direct result of what our culture places value in. 
So you, you'll notice that like we tend to have this uh, puritanical uh, basis for some of our morality, but that is also cut with this idea of daredevils who came over from another country to set up their own country. So a lot of the people who came over from Europe and to found our country were super entrepreneurial and risk takers. They came over here because they wanted to escape, you know, whatever it was, religious persecution, or they just wanted to have opportunity in the new world. Um, and of course there was, I'm not, I'm not going to get into what was done and what was not done. Cause that's a whole separate conversation, but when you take a look at that, one of the things I think you see is that you see this value system placed on, well, we want to have the sort of puritanical take care of yourself and your and your community type orientation, but we're also pretty individualistic and want people to take risks. So when you have a character who goes, well, I'm going to go kill people, we go, oh, that's too far. Like there's too much puritanism in our in our history as a country for us to get on board with that kind of thinking. But at the same time, because we're risk takers and because we want to see people move forward um, and take risks, we also sort of uh, don't – this is a whole different debate too, and I do not want to get into this on this episode. But we're like, you know, we have a Second Amendment and we think guns are okay and these kind of things. And so when we see the Mandalorian on screen, we want to see him use his flamethrower. We want to see him shoot droids in the head because they're not really sentient beings. But we really don't like it if he takes justice into his own hands in order to like actually kill people unless it is absolutely something that must happen in order for the story to move forward and for good to be accomplished. And so I think that basically the Western genre is an exploration of how America was formed in some ways. And we hearken back to that when we watch a show like The Mandalorian. Now, I know I realize that's way too deep to get into and I'm not unpacking that in like enough ways. I think that was a ridiculous uh, cultural phenomenon kind of thing to get into. But I think if you were to look at what we value in America today, and I don't mean individually, I don't mean tribally, I mean like nationally, what we have traditionally valued, then um, I think you see a lot of in The Mandalorian that reflected back to us. And we sort of all kind of want to be The Mandalorian doing good things for good people, but resisting giant organizations and giant overstepping governments to be able to accomplish what we want to individually taking risks to do so. And I think that that's why this is a popular show. And I think that's why Westerns have been traditionally popular. So I don't know. There you go. There's my rant for the day. <laughs> well, that was great. That was super fascinating. I think you could spend hours, like you said, unpacking all that and talking about how that's developed over time. Yeah, you could. I mean, you could talk about because what you would have to talk about, you'd have to talk about the formation of governments. I mean, I don't think that there is there are definitely correlations to the Revolutionary War and what we see throughout the original trilogy. Right. We see a group of rebels fighting against a, a giant imperialistic state. Well, the colonial in colonial times in America, what was this type similar type of thing? Well, that was exactly what it was an empirical uh, British government um, that had that was basically global in, in many ways in terms of its influence. And then all of the people who were willing to take risks in America going, no, we don't want that anymore. <laughs> right. Like uh, so I think um, I think that there are some correlations there. Naturally, I think George Lucas historically has set up his stories in ways to hearken uh, into history, into historical events and what has gone on in historical events. 
Um, you can obviously bring in uh, World War II era type of scenarios as well into those um, into those uh, correlations between the the two stories, the real real life stories and the the George Lucas narratives, and everybody who's followed George Lucas. So I think that that is um, that's pretty pretty compelling stuff. I also think we saw some comments come out from John Boyega and J.J. Abrams about their thoughts about The Last Jedi, and then all that debate came up again. And I'm not going to get into that debate here, but one of the things I think is fascinating about that is that The Last Jedi, in many regards, sort of said, yeah, we like to tell ourselves that there are the big, bad, imperial bad guys, and we like to tell ourselves that we're the rebels and that we're really fighting really well. But let's all face it, like now that we know more about even how our own country was formed and now we know more about um the other nations and what we have done to other nations and the the atrocities that we've committed let's just all admit that that's not those aren't always the most true narratives and we those narratives become more nuanced and when you put that into a star wars narrative it feels really different and you go oh wow that feels really different like he's yeah. he, he, you know um so anyways what what is your thoughts on that yeah, I think, well, The Last Jedi is actually my personal favorite Star Wars movie. And for part of the reasons that you talked about, just that it it's still Star Wars, but it kind of causes us to like go back and question some of the stuff we saw in the past. And maybe that these heroes that they um, that we looked up to weren't quite as spotless. I'm really interested to see fans come back to The Last Jedi maybe in like five, ten years and see how everyone feels about mm. it then. Because sometimes it is hard to go back and question. Like when you're reading through our own history, you're like, wow, we have done some really awful stuff. And, you know, people that we admire and look up to, they had flaws that um, – that we uncover as we do more research. And so I think it, it is tricky to see, like to bring some of that into our mythology that the heroes that we look up to are flawed and that maybe history is not as black and white as you thought it were. So it, it can be difficult as fans, but I think that just makes the franchise stronger in the long run because we don't want to just see them remaking a new hope again and again and again. And it's, <laughs> right. it's going to evolve as our culture and we as a society evolve. So I'm really curious to see people that maybe didn't love the sequel trilogy right now, if they come back to it in five, 10 years, you know, if their thoughts have changed and when you have that in context with the whole saga and how it's evolved over time. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so we'll end the episode there. It sounds like we need a whole other episode in terms of like all the different aspects of Star Wars that relate to our own historical context. Um, but in the meantime, The Mandalorian is amazing. So as a reminder to everybody, the next show is going, we're going to have a really crazy week next week. The next Mandalorian episode is coming out on Wednesday, not Friday. So remember, it's coming out on Wednesday. That is December 18th. Um, and then on uh, Thursday or Friday, you'll probably be seeing, or at least over that weekend at some point, you'll probably be seeing The Rise of Skywalker. So for me, I'm watching The Mandalorian on the 18th, and I am literally watching The Rise of Skywalker the next day on the 19th. Same. So it is uh, – oh, perfect, perfect. So it is Star Wars weekend coming up here um, next weekend. Uh, so I hope you, you guys all enjoy it right before Christmas. It's a great Christmas present to everybody who loves Star Wars. Uh, so we will um, be releasing another episode uh, probably on the 19th or 20th, possibly the 21st for The Mandalorian. And then if you're on the Story Geeks uh, main channel, the Story Geeks podcast, um, then you're going to get a Rise of Skywalker reaction show uh, that following Tuesday 
as well. So I hope you guys enjoy all that content. Ashley, thanks for joining me. It's just the two of us, and we went for about an hour and ten minutes, so not bad. Thanks. It was fun. Well, that's it for today's show. Special thanks to Ashley Pauls for joining me today. By the way, definitely check out thestorygeeks.com. That's our blog. And on our blog, Ashley has done some phenomenal articles for us. So if you're a fan of Ashley, then definitely check out the blog. Um, She's a fantastic writer and you will enjoy all of her stuff. Make sure you subscribe to the Story Geeks Talk Disney Plus so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes on The Mandalorian. We've only got a few more left. Lots of really cool stuff to happen. Obviously, we've already talked about those things being set up. Subscribe today on your preferred podcast provider. And while you're out there looking at Story Geeks content, make sure you also check out the Story Geeks podcast. We're in the middle of a giant Star Wars series over there doing lots of episodes. We just did a couple episodes on our top 10 Star Wars characters. So please go check that out. And also consider becoming a member of the Story Geeks Club. If you join us on the Story Geeks Club, you can get access to my almost daily journals. You can get access to live recordings of shows. And if you even go to the $5 tier, you can get discussion questions and prompts sent to you. So definitely check those things out. For more information on the Story Geeks Club or the Story Geeks Network in general, and of course, to see Ashley's blogs, visit thestorygeeks.com. Thanks for listening, and as always, question everything in your favorite geek stories, and always seek the truth. Special thanks to all the members of the Story Geeks Club. You can become part of the club for only $2 a month, like I mentioned earlier. Of course, if you upgrade to $3 a month, you can vote on upcoming show topics and even join some of our shows live. At $5 a month, our Guardians of the Solar System tier, you get access to all of our discussion questions and prompts before each show comes out. Our Guardians of the Solar System are Adam Vargas, Bob Sherfield, Justin Weaver, Mary Baldwin, and Wade Johnson. At $8 a month, the tier we call our Cosmic Heroes, you get to choose an Aftercast topic every series. You get to choose it. You get to choose what we talk about. Our cosmic heroes are Jim Baldwin, Monty Thigpen, Nick Prokop, and Ray DeLeon. And finally, at $19 a month, you get access to a free t-shirt. We give you a free t-shirt, and you get to join us on an aftercast every single month. Our one extra special mastermind of multiverse madness is Connie Mo. We appreciate all the members of the Story Geeks Club, even those we haven't mentioned by name. If you would like to support the show by joining the Story Geeks Club, please head over to thestorygeeks.com.